authors on the air. This is a uh, Pam Stack show, and um, I know we got off to a little bit of a rocky start um, as far as being able to hear what was going on, but now it's uh, just me and and James Lee Burke. Wow, I'm I'm ex- I'm so nervous and excited for a lot of reasons. Um, let me go ahead and give you a, a brief introduction for any. Maybe there might be three people on the planet Earth that aren't familiar with uh with Mr. Burke, and uh, he's a New York Times best-selling author, two-time winner of the uh, Edgar Award, recipient of the Guggenheim Fellowship for Creative Arts and Fiction. He's authored a whopping 39 novels, two short story collections, and he lives in Missoula, Montana. Now, that's the official uh, introduction, but I just wanted to tag on there that um, James Lee Burke is a legend. Uh, He is also um, main... One of one of the main reasons I got into this gig to try to write stories on my own, and this is the first time I'm able to talk to him and talk to him about what I think is truly brilliant, um, which is the Holland family saga. So, and we're getting ready to see this one come out. Another kind of Eden. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and it's it's, a nice cover. it's it's a great book, um, and it's another. Lo- piece of flesh added to the tapestry of the Holland family with, with this new story, but from Aaron's perspective, um, who is one of the four grandsons of the great Hackberry Holland. So um, now that we've got that out, thanks for, for, for doing this and for coming on and talking to me. Well, thank you for, as I say, inviting me and for you all uh, getting together uh, all this Electricity, electronics. I'm the one that I'm afraid messed everything. <laughs> Legendary mess up. No way. No way. <laughs> it's a little so, behind the scenes, actually. We introduce our guest. He just put his hand on the on the platform. Here, the whole place collapses. <laughs> Well, listen, now now it's just us two guys chatting. So that's that's the way I like okay. it anyway. So um yeah. I uh I want to let's just talk about this for a second. This is coming out on the 17th of this month. Um I think we're counting yes. down now. We got a little less a little over 2 weeks before this drops. And then you're going to be doing all kinds of virtual stuff for people. Um and we'll get a, a chance to talk again on the 24th, which is pretty great. But uh my main question that I wanted to just jump right out of the box and ask you is when you sat down with this vision of doing a family saga as opposed to the legendary like Dave Robichaux series, what was your intention for this? Was, was it always going to be the sprawling saga of, of these generations or was it just a story and it just grew out of an, out of a nutshell? Did you always see it being this huge imprint? Yes, uh, absolutely. I've been writing about the Hollands for, oh, gee, many years. The first uh, story I ever published at age 19 in a college magazine was uh, a Holland story. It's been my very first publication, 1956. Wow. And so, so was Hackberry your original? Um, was it always going to start with him and as a catalyst and and spread out from there, or was Weldon maybe the first one 
that you wanted to to inspire by because it's yeah. almost like we go back to Weldon all the time. Wayfaring Stranger being for me the catalyst of the story. From a literary perspective, Hackberry was always the patriarch of the family. The real patriarch is Son Holland, who was an escapee from a Louisiana chain gang in 1835 and who went west. They used to call him GTTs, gone to Texas, crossed the Sabine, and he joined up uh, with Sam Houston's uh, army that eventually won the revolution uh, in 36 at the Battle of San Jacinto. But that was, um, Son Holland does not appear again. It's Hackberry Holland who represents the ethos of the Hollands and also their weaknesses. But it's based on uh, my mother's family. My grandmother was Alifair Holland. That's where my daughter's name comes from. And they were remarkable people. Uh, uh, There's just no question about it. The story of the American frontier is inexhaustible, number one. Number two, it is, without any derivation, any kind, the pure existential America. It is it. The people... the image that people often uh, laugh at, the cowboy riding off into the sunset, blah, blah, blah. And uh, it, uh, what are called Westerns are you know, way down in a subcategory. That's all wrong. It's totally backward. The American story is the story of the French existentialist or the Song of Roland, the story of Ronsfeld. It's the story of mankind. It was John Nyhart and A.B. Guthrie who gave us this legacy. James Fenimore Cooper as well. But actually, it was Guthrie and Dr. Uh, uh, you know, uh, John, uh, uh, you know, uh, my head just went blank. <laughs> he was my first creative writing teacher. Uh, but anyway, I didn't mean to start with proselytizing, but you cannot use up uh, the American West. The best Western story ever put on film was Shane, and it was written by A.B. Guthrie, or the adaptation was written from the novel. But also, uh, well, anyway, there are many great Western writers, but it is the, the... what, what are we really talking about? We're talking about the history of man. Man has always followed the sun. He has always walked westward. And we're still doing it. Look, for good or bad, everything that is innovative in this country has its origins on the West Coast. It's always out of the West Coast. I mean, you name it, uh, the Hell's Angels written, uh, Dick Nixon, <laughs> the Brea Tar Pits, Charlie Manson. How can you, you would have to spend thousands of years to amass a cast of characters like this, but they're all in Los Angeles County. Right, right. <laughs> well, what you've done is pretty fascinating with this family. You've taken this Holland family and you've shown over the course of generations and generations. Um, all the way from 
Civil War era all the way to now. Well, not, we're not. That's my next question. But you've you've taken one family and shown what kind of an imprint one singular bloodline can have on the entire nation. And and that's that's fascinating to me because we're not talking about a lot of money, a family with a lot of money. We're not talking about a family with a lot of power. We're talking about a family and and the bloodline that runs and how much effect it has on the whole country and everyone around them. But by these small singular stories, like even with this new one, you know, talking about the workers union is is pretty like that's incredibly powerful stuff. And we're not talking about it through the eyes of someone who's grandiose, like the great Gatsby. We're talking about somebody like you or me, just regular guys trying to do their, their job and make the best of their life. That's correct. That's it. You got it. It's the everyman figure right. out of the medieval morality plays. That's it. You got it. So, so, okay. My, my question, and I, I got to ask it, do you see a long game with the family bringing it into modern era like to take this, these Western, because that's essentially what these are. These are Western stories. And you're showing this, this creation of a country through the eyes of the everyman. Do you see that coming all the way into what the country is now? Do you see that coming? Like, do you see yourself writing these characters and what's coming after them? Or are we going to focus yes, strictly I, on the four grandsons? Uh, I'm, I've already written the sequel to Another Kind of Eden. It's titled um, uh, ooh, um, Every Robe Every Robe Rolled in Blood. It's a line from the Bible. Every Robe Rolled in Blood. Oh, I'm... It, sounds, it sounds pretty gothic, but uh, it's not. Um, but it's a story of on the surface of the pandemic, but it's far deeper than that. It's the best novel I've written. It's a very painful novel, it's content, um, I have to say. It was difficult to write, but uh, it's the, the narrator is Aaron Holland Broussard once again, but he's 85 years old. He tells the story of what he sees, the. America doing today and his trepidation at the implications of it because I I'm, I was born the uh, first administration of Franklin Roosevelt but uh, I think we live in a much more dangerous era than during either the depression the uh, World War II or the McCarthy hearings I think we're in a far different kind of uh, moment and it's uh, it's I I, I think I, I I have great fear for our grandchildren. I have no doubt in my mind that anybody who just heard you say that is saying perfect man for that job to to put the blinders on it and show it through a novel through the stories is you and I cannot wait for that one. That's going to be something that will blow the doors off of everything. You mentioned a second ago about religion um, and how it sounded gothic in the title and how you use that. Religion seems to play a part in in a lot of these stories. Um, I was raised Catholic, so I have a lot of guilt and a lot of uh, responsibility, uh, I feel like, that comes through in my writing that I don't even mean to let happen. 
Um, do you, does that happen to you? Like even in this book, we're dealing with a cult and and the mysticism of of this of, in this novel. But I mean, it, it it's it happens a lot throughout your stories. How important is 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 religion? In is it does it seep into your work by accident, or is it something that you feel like you need to talk about? No, I, I don't think religion per se is actually a factor in my work. Um, <clears throat> The what creates religions is in my work. In other words, actually, the Judeo-Christian ethos that we see at work in all of Western civilization. I mean, that's where that's where Western civilization came from. Okay, it's actually this this simple. If you look back through the telescope of history, just turn it around. Look look from the present into the past. There is one line in the Bible that created Western civilization. Jesus is confronted with his taunters. They're always trying to trip him up. And they ask him if man should serve uh, Caesar or should he serve God? And they think they've got him. Well, Jesus is a pretty good debater. He <laughs> said, give, give me a coin. And he asked them, what is on the coin? He says, on the coin is the face of Caesar. And he has made them answer their own question. He says, give unto God what is God's and give unto Caesar what is Caesar. One sentence, he established latitude. And he put away confinement of the imagination and the inventor, and the inventor lives in the unconscious. This cast cast this against the mindset of the only competitor of Judeo-Christian thought, namely uh, Mohammedism. And I'm not I'm not denigrating them. Don't of course not. I don't mean that at all. But it is that lack of latitude, of the ability to adjust, that has confined them to the Middle Ages, and it will be their undoing. They are not a viable enemy. But it was, in other words, the uniqueness of Western thought came from a simple prophet, son of God, simple, or just come. Uh, Carpenter are just a very wise man. I mean, Jesus has many personalities. It's a matter of interpretation. But that was the line that did it. You see, in other words, it's the benighted person is the one who is locked into a religion that does not allow other ways of doing it. And he does it again and then again when he spoke to his followers. He'd always say, do it this way. Or do it that way, or let. I remember what is it? Uh, oh my heavens! He he, you know, he had a great sense of humor as well. <laughs> but in other words, he would say things. If it doesn't work that way, you got to break a law, like working on the Sabbath. Do it. How Listen, many church churches did he go into? I, I he didn't agree with that hundred percent. You know, I I wrote a short story one time called a, what? His Church. Where were his his sandals went, and then he said, "When he said you're not welcome in a city, give them the dust from your heels." 
But my father used to, he used to have a term around the house. He used to say that, because my dad liked a lot of country and Western music and and followed Waylon Jennings and that kind of thing. And that was a question I wanted to ask you about, about music and how it inspires you or if, you, if it does when you do your writing. But he used to say that Jesus was the biggest outlaw of them all. And I love that. And it even came down to a short story I wrote called Jesus is a Gunslinger. And the whole concept was exactly that, like turn it on his head and see it for what it is. These, he was, he was the out, the outside making sense. And that's, that's a significant part of the way you write things is the outside makes sense. You always come up against an establishment, even with the Robichaux novels, he comes up against establishment all the time. And the establishment is 99% wrong. Not to say that Robichaux ain't wrong sometimes, (laughs) you know, but the establishment is usually what breaks them down. Even in this book, um, with the Vickers family that that I guess you would call them the antagonists in the new novel. Um, the yeah. the Vickers, they they're convinced that they've got it made because they've got the establishment on their side, you know, with the workers union and they're, they're they feel like they're above it all. And it takes somebody who has a moral compass like Aaron to 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 go and battle this. And so it, once again, it puts the establishment in the light of evil and. That's that's a recurring theme without throughout the Holland family novels, even Hackberry, who was a hard, hard ass, you know, and then you've got his descendants and Aaron, I probably would probably be the nicest one, you know, maybe. Um, But at least he's got the biggest moral compass. But you end up fighting that establishment and and in the end, everything comes out to be the right way, the way it's supposed to be. So is that something that, that, that plays into your books or does your story always just happen to have some grip in reality and the rest of it is all you? Cause the, the, the workers union here is, is basically set up to be the bad guy. So are they, or is it just the way that it was handled no. back then? No, no, I, no. The, the, the real issue and all of my work is it's, it's just go back to what we were saying a minute. And let's give Waylon uh, a footnote here. Waylon should have gotten the Pulitzer Prize when he sang, I might be crazy, but it's kept me from going insane. <laughs> go, Waylon. Yes, sir. <laughs> we okay. are, we're connected for life we're now. Religion. We're both Waylon yeah. fans. <laughs> But the most religious book ever written, arguably, would be the Bible, okay? Except it is the only book ever written about religion that does not have the word religion in it. And that's my point, okay? That the stories in my work, I think, this is where I believe they have their origination. They come from some place in the unconscious. I subscribe to Carl Jung's theory of inherited memory. It's in the unconscious. The artist, the eccentric, and there's no such thing as a non-eccentric artist, has a gift, and that gift is a neurosis, a conduit into the unconscious. That's why John Milton talked about his hours of creativity in terms of darkness. He said that the illumination in his life came to him in his blindness because in his dreams, he saw the world as a lighted place and he woke at sunrise to blindness. 
But in other words, what is he telling us? That all truth, all insight is locked in the 90% of the brain, of the thinking process, that do, we do not consciously acknowledge. Why? Because it's frightening. Much of it, I mean, our dreams are oftentimes nightmares, not you know, visits to a, you know, a Caribbean island. There are horrible things going on in our heads because during the seven million years that we evolved from hominids into pretty, uh, pretty much people like we are today, I mean, it, we're, we're really still very early in our our this stage of evolution that we are, are having a lot of trouble with today. I mean, unfortunately, we have learned to make weapons that we should not be allowed to have. Okay, that's what this new book is about. It takes place in 1962, talking about uh, another kind of Eden. It takes place during the year of the Cuban Missile Crisis. For me, or as far as my perception is concerned, that year is one of the most important in our national history. Why? We stepped right through a door into neo, a neo-colonial power. It was John Kennedy who put the first 25,000 Green Berets in Vietnam. Number two, John Kennedy uh, came two hours from annihilating a large part of the planet. Don't take my word. Take his. It's on tape. The uh, Americans that were on, uh, on <clears throat> excuse me, on those ships right off of the coast of Cuba were told to stand down two hours before they were going over the gunwales, down the nets, and into the LSTs. This is what occurred, or did not occur. It were two men there who talked Kennedy into another way of doing it. And without getting all of the history, we'll just say right. that. It was another way to do it. But three weeks later, John Kennedy, his speech is never repeated, and I don't know why, unless it would just scare the daylights out of people. But this is what he That's exactly said what. three weeks after the showdown with Khrushchev. He said, victory would have been ashes in our mouths one month after an exchange of thermonuclear weapons 185 million Americans would be dead. And he rolled the dice anyway. That just frightens me to death. Right. I'm not, uh, John Kennedy was a great man, but this one on this one, this was recklessness and it was not about defense, it was about politics. Agreed. Anyway, th this story that I have written, it takes in 1962. It deals with that, but also deals with the coming of the drug culture, one that is not just still with us. It, it was just getting started back then. But also the class war was in, uh, boy, uh, going full, 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 uh, excuse me, <clears throat> uh, uh, 
anyway, going full blast. And I, you mentioned the union movement too. The we we meet the American Farm Workers Union, the United Farm Workers of America, but also the novel takes us back into the antecedents of the contemporary labor unions, and that is the. Uh, you know, the industrial workers of the world and the uh, Ludlow massacre of 1914. And I know when I was going to school, I mean, both from from grade school all the way through graduate school, I don't remember one textbook that had anything about the Ludlow massacre in it or any of the terrible things that happened during the labor movement, the, uh, the terrible... Uh, a fire in the shirt factory and all those young women were locked in there and, and, and leapt into the flames or to the death. Um, that, that this book, I think, probably is my most diverse, but it's, it's not about yesterday. It's about today. It's about who we are today. Because I think that we... We made choices back there that, one, made us not only a neo-colonial power, but one that had benighted itself because we're in denial about the role we have had. And again, I'm not, these are not political statements. It's simply a fact. Right. And um, I, I love the characters, though, the farm workers that we meet. And I, I, uh, most of my characters are based, well, one way or another, at least parts of people put it that way. I'm never quite sure where they come from. But I worked with the fellow who went to war underneath the cata- in the catacombs underneath the Vatican. It's one of those unknown stories. I worked with this fellow. He was a ranger, and he said when the Germans uh, pulled out of Rome, they were headed north, the first GIs got there. Well, they didn't realize that some SS got loose and they went down into the catacombs. These SS, these are really bad guys. And there were three levels, not just one level under Rome. And I later went down in the catacombs and I found out this, everything this ranger told me was the truth. There are three levels and these GIs chased these, these guys were, um, what's the, the SS, the, oh, they're really the worst of the worst. They killed, uh, they killed prisoners. And, and they're absolutely evil. But this friend of mine, a man I worked with, uh, said that he had it out with them all the way down into the room underneath the Vatican where there was the coffin of St. Paul and St. Peter. And he's, they, he's, they killed it. They killed every one of those SS guys down there. But no one. I'm the only person I think that ever heard that story. That's an that's an incredible. Anyway, it's in the book. I worked with some very right. interesting fellows. <laughs> Clearly, that's. I never did anything myself, but I'm a good listener. <laughs> hey, listen. You put it out there for everybody else to hear about. So trust me, your 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 voice is necessary in the chain of events. You know, I was talking to my daughter um, I, after I read this book. I talked to my daughter about the Cuban Missile Crisis, and she didn't even know it was a thing. She's 16. She's fixing to graduate high school. She's going into college. She's, 
You know, she's this she's the brightest kid I know, but it's just not something that they talked about in school because it does it, it's it's shameful almost for us to be able to talk. So you use fiction to be able to bring that, that about. And that what you just described about the SS under the Vatican, I can't yeah. think of a bigger or or greater, more gothic uh, envisioning of good versus evil right there. <laughs> you know, busting right there. <laughs> they were underneath the obelisk. Right. In other words, and people on the top up here walking around eating lasagna and pizza and getting stone drunk on Italian red wine. You know, the GIs all were deliberated. The whole city was dancing. <laughs> the ultimate struggle between Christianity and evil is happening under their feet. feet and <laughs> nobody has any awareness of it. Right. It's, just, <laughs> it's, it's, al it's almost like it's, 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 it can't so, have been real. And so uh, it, it's, it, you have to put it in yeah. a book like this in order for people to understand, well, maybe that's kind of true. <laughs> so using fiction to make people believe that, or know about the things that actually happened, is, it's mind boggling. Yeah, <laughs> um, I think that we're uh, that we're five minutes into wrapping this up, and, and I hate that because I man, I wish I could talk to you. First, I want to say this really quickly. Um, I want to just tell you that when I wrote my first book and asked, I told oh, my dad okay. I wanted to be a writer. My my father said, "Here, um, take a look at this," and he handed me a copy of Bitter Root and said, "If you can write like this, then you know you you got it." I'm having a hard time hearing you. Can you hear me? Uh, it's breaking. Oh, we up. might we we might be losing you. I don't know. I can hear you. Can you okay. hear me? I hear you now. I hear you. Okay. Yes, oh, James Lee Burke just called me, sir. That's that's nuts. Um, oh. I just wanted to tell you that you were my dad's favorite writer, and my dad had always told me if I was going to be a writer, I needed to, to, to be in the same ring with somebody like you. And so wow. being able to talk to you today is something that, that um, I know would have made him super proud. So thank you for this opportunity. Well, it means you. everything thank to you, me. Um, That's a very nice compliment. I would also, I, I wanted to quick get this question in because a, a, a fan of yours asked me if Hackberry was a, uh, if he got his name from the Louisiana Hackberry over by Lake Charles, or if his name came from the Hackberry in Texas, um, or if you well, just came up with it on your own, because you are connected to both states. No, that was those those are real names, right? And I'm, I'm saying, was, was your, was your, oh, it's actual. Yeah. That was his actual name. That's his name. He's buried there, and uh, his name's on the same tombstone there in Yokum, Texas, with Sam Morgan Holland, who was another patriarch. He was one other, an older, the immediate older I generation. And uh, they were both uh, uh, Confederate officers in the war between the states, uh, and Sam Morgan Holland was the one, though, that had the violent history, uh, the most violent of the Hollands. And the Hollands were pretty, pretty. Anyways, just during the week. Right, right. I got you. In the violent era. But I just, I just thought it was interesting. That, Holland, go ahead. No, I'm so, I just thought it was interesting that there was an actual Hackberry, Texas, um, and then there was an, also a Hackberry, Louisiana, 
And since you're so fluent in both states and nope. you've read about both states, that I wondered if that had any kind. And the fact that there was nope. actually two hackberries in the book nope. um, or in the book saga, I just thought, wow, how cool that would be location and geographically. Um, I, I think I'm being asked to wrap us up. Um, so I, I, I wish I could sit here and talk to you all day. There's so much that you could say that awesome. so many people need to hear. Uh, but I will say thank you to Pam um stack for having us on office on the air uh it's been an incredibly huge deal for me um the book is called another kind of eden which comes out on the 17th um and it's an incredible story and and it's going to halt us right as mr burke said it's going to bring us right into the to the to the next chapter of the holland family which is going to bring us into modern day and and then and it's just a genius story this is a tapestry of love. It's not, it's not, God, there's so many things I could say about this book, but I will say it, it's fantastic. You're an incredible writer. And this has been my honor to be able to talk to you just for these few minutes. Well, thank you. If I could just a quick addendum. Uh, sure. This novel is also related to uh, my best work. My best novel is Wayfaring Stranger. Amen. Way, uh, uh, Weldon Holland. Weldon Holland. Based on a real story about World War II. And the other is <clears throat> um, The Jealous Kind. That's the first time we meet uh, Aaron. Aaron Holland. It's a great story about the 1950s. My feeling of what the 1950s represented, because it's not like. The what is it? Happy days. Don't buy into that. <laughs> <laughs> I have de- I have described. Thank you for having me. Um, you, I have described Wayfarer and Stranger as the modern odyssey. Uh, as if home. It, it's not just a novel. It's it's the epic poem that starts the entire saga. It's it's That's brilliant. Wayfarer and Stranger. If if anybody doesn't have that, you should go out and get it right this minute because you it's it it'll pay itself back within hours i I appreciate it it is it is it is the best thing i've ever written yeah well this has been amazing uh mr burke we will talk again on the 24th when you're doing your virtual tour and i'll be following along with uh, all the other great writers you've got talking to you and and discussing this and i hope uh i hope i didn't do aaron right wrong and i i did okay <laughs> no, you did swell. And I'm, I call me Jim, and you're Brian. Okay. Yes, you got it. You got it. Thank you so Mr. much.